Hey, everybody. It is Wednesday, January 3rd. If you're writing it out, 1324, January 3rd, 2024. And you're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Moshe Wanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. I should mention the 1324. Uh, Jill, I realize <laughs> as I said that, maybe I'm just over eager for the year 2034 when we'll actually have January 2nd, 1234. Um, though I should mention the last day, we didn't have a podcast, obviously, but the last day of 2023 was 123123, 123123 which some people thought was cool. And uh, there were a whole bunch of weddings so people could have that date. Though it's only in the US that we write our month and then day and then year. Most of the rest of the world, their day first, day, month, year. Except the Canadians, as I learned, the Canadians write it all the ways. As what? A nice thing for everybody. The Canadians, yeah, there's no standard in Canada. Apparently, it confuses Canadians to no end because they write the dates month first, day first, sometimes year first. Because it's Canada, and they're trying to make everyone feel, you know, welcome. Just pick a team, Canada. <laughs> <laughs> Jill, I'm still here in Florida, but I understand you're watching the weather up in New York. That's right, Mosh. Something that has not happened in nearly 700 days. It is possible that this weekend we could get hit with a nor'easter and possibly some snowfall. And by snowfall, I mean significant more than an inch. Yeah, that's the thing. Baltimore, Philly, New York have now all gone about two years now without seeing more than one inch of snow in any one storm, which is pretty significant. There has been El Nino, but of course, climate change is blamed, etc. But time to go look for your snowblower and your uh, shovels. Joe, you haven't needed them in a while. You know what, Mosh? I will happily welcome some snow because... That is kind of part of winter, right? <laughs> I miss it. Well, in, in, in certain parts of the country, right? In the South, not so much. But um, in the Northeast, you're used to it. And you have, you have young kids. And while two years may not seem like a lot, they probably don't remember significant snowfall in their lifetimes. All right, Moshe, let's get to some news here. Israel took out a top Hamas leader in Beirut. What this could mean for the broader war and whether Hezbollah will now carry out even more attacks on Israel. In Japan, two planes collide and catch fire, though miraculously, the more than 300 crew and passengers on board that passenger plane escaped. What could have caused it? Back here in the U.S., Harvard's president, Claudine Gay, has resigned amid a ton of pressure. Donald Trump getting ready to appeal Colorado's 14th Amendment ballot disqualification case. Supreme Court, here we come. And an earthquake in a very unlikely place, Queens, Queens, New York. And apparently we are due for a big one here in New York. Yeah, we'll talk about earthquakes in the East Coast later in the pod. And Moshe and I have talked on this podcast before about how some musicians don't necessarily like playing some of their most popular songs, but they do it anyway for the fans. Not Nicki Minaj. She says she's done with one of her biggest hits. We'll tell you which one. Don't write it. Don't put it out if you don't want to perform it, musicians. And Moshe has on this day in history. A big day in Apple history, the computer company, not the fruit. Also, a cell phone many of us from the 90s or 2000s will remember. And an opportunity to tell my favorite story about Aretha Franklin, Jill. All right, let's uh, start overseas. The number two in Hamas was killed on Tuesday in an attack in Beirut, Lebanon. Hamas is blaming Israel for the assassination of Salah el-Arori. According to Lebanese state media, the attack was carried out using a drone and targeted Hamas offices 
During a meeting of senior members, Hamas is reporting that besides for El Rory, two other high-ranking leaders of Hamas's armed wing, the Al Qasim Brigades, were also killed, along with several others. There was reportedly a top meeting among terror leaders happening at the time. Now, some background here outside of Gaza. A number of major Hamas leaders are based in Beirut, along with Doha, Qatar, which we've talked about before. Arori was the deputy head of the political bureau of the organization. He was considered a dominant and influential figure, mainly because of his attempts to develop a militant battalion in the West Bank and because of his residence in Beirut, where he was in close contact with the leader of Hezbollah, Hassan Nasrallah. While the Israelis are not taking responsibility for the attacks, U.S. defense officials are telling media outlets that they think Israel was behind them. Notably, the Israelis have said that they will assassinate all Hamas leaders who were involved in the October 7th massacre that killed 1,200 Israelis, no matter where they are in the world. Hamas called it a, quote, cowardly assassination. The Lebanese prime minister condemned the killing, saying that the attack, quote, aims to draw Lebanon into a new phase of confrontations with Israel at a time that Hezbollah has already been exchanging fire with Israel every day for the last three months as part of solidarity with Hamas in Gaza. The attack took place in a neighborhood in Beirut that is controlled by Hezbollah. Yeah, we should make note of this. We got a couple questions on our Instagram about it, uh, asking, wait, how is it that this is taking place inside Lebanon? Well, going back now more than four decades, there are parts of Lebanon that the Lebanese military or police don't control. Uh, groups like the PLO, Hamas, Hezbollah in particular, controls parts of the country, particularly in the south, but also in the capital. It would literally be like if certain parts of Chicago, New York, D.C. were controlled by an independent militia or a political party with its own military wing that basically local police or the military couldn't infiltrate. So that's the neighborhood where this took place. Jill has been noteworthy how the Israelis are describing this, a spokesperson for the Israeli government. Again, while not taking responsibility for this, <laughs> told an interviewer, obviously in Lebanon, there are many Hezbollah targets. Whoever did this strike, it was very surgical and went for Hamas target. Whoever did this, it's not an attack on Lebanon. It's not an attack on Hezbollah. Whoever did this, it's definitely an attack on Hamas. That's very clear. So I, clearly Israel not saying they're doing it, even though it's interesting how the Israelis are describing it and what they know about the attack. So that's just something to note here. It is a major move, let's be frank here, as the Americans have admitted it, etc., by Israel inside Lebanon as this fighting has been taking place for three months here. It's been largely concentrated on the border as Hezbollah attacked um, Israel across the border in the south. Beirut is in the central part of the country on the coast. And this would be deemed an escalation here. The challenge for Lebanon, as they don't control entire parts of their country, is they're also desperate for no war here with Israel. And so that's why you heard the Lebanese prime minister come out there, um, condemn it. Uh, Hezbollah is part of politics, does hold seats um, in the Lebanese government, um, in addition to their militant activity. Lebanon doesn't want to be dragged into this war. They've been desperate, uh, telling Iran, telling Hezbollah, please don't get us involved. Please don't get us involved. Please don't bring on Israeli attacks. Uh, because back in 2006, Lebanon was impacted significantly by that last war. Now, Hezbollah will be looking to avenge this. Hamas will be looking to avenge this. What does that mean in terms of escalation? We'll see. Politically speaking, for the Israelis, this is a win for them. They have taken out some mid, some senior leaders um, in Hamas. But those top leaders, including Yahya Sinwar in Gaza, remain at large. So the ability to take out al-Aruri here in Beirut 
is a big deal. He served a significant amount of time in Israeli prison through the years. He was also behind the kidnapping and killing of three Israeli teens in the West Bank back in 2014. That actually triggered one of the last Israel-Gaza wars, uh, where more than 2,000 Palestinians were killed in that war in Gaza. He played a central role here working with the Iranians. He apparently had a major meeting set up tomorrow. That is no longer happening, clearly. Uh, He did work with Hezbollah here. Uh, And notably here, Jill, timing and dates are significant in the Middle East. This happened within four years, nearly to the hour of the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, the top Iranian general that Trump in the U.S. took out. Not likely a coincidence here. It may have been because of this terror meeting, but significant here, a message from Israel and the West that it will take out terror leaders that threaten them. Also worth noting in terms of timing, we, we talked about on the podcast yesterday, Israel just announced that it was going to be withdrawing a bunch of troops from Gaza, not only for reasons to get its economy back up and running uh, because of so many reserves had been basically out of the workforce, but some had said as well, perhaps in preparation for a larger war with Hezbollah. Yeah, that's the thing uh, that a lot of Israelis speculate right now is that given Hezbollah's capabilities, that ultimately Israel will be turning to them next. They're the other uh, major Iranian uh, proxy group that threatens Israel with rockets daily, etc. The Israelis have evacuated uh, more than 100,000 residents from northern Israel that have been in the Hezbollah target zone the past couple months. And the Times of Israel quoting a defense expert saying that Hezbollah has actually built a tunnel network that is even more sophisticated than Hamas's. That's the thing. If you look at the numbers, Hamas has the second largest assets, is the second richest terror group in the world, uh, had the second most amount of missiles. Number one, Hezbollah in terms of their capability, in terms of their weaponry, and clearly also in terms of the tunnels that they have built under Lebanon. Again, one of the concerns for Lebanese who have suffered now under 40 plus years of war due to uh, Palestinian groups being there, now Iranian-backed groups being there. Ultimately, they're just like, oh, please don't bring this on us. We have 100% inflation and all these other issues. The last thing we want is war. Meanwhile, another area that we are monitoring for risk of a larger regional war, the Red Sea. On Tuesday, Maersk, one of the world's largest shippers, said that it would be pausing all shipping through the Red Sea until further notice after one of its vessels came under attack from Houthi terrorists over the weekend. The decision by the Danish shipping giant extends a 48-hour pause that was implemented on Sunday in the immediate aftermath of the attack. The U.S. military did help defend the ship against that attack. Vessels from the company will be rerouted and continue their journey around the Cape of Good Hope in Africa in cases where this makes sense, according to the company. But that is a route that takes an extra two to three weeks, and it will likely lead to supply chain delays and higher costs. Yeah, you can't cut through the Suez and go through the Red Sea. You got to go all the way around Africa. And that's not insignificant. About 12% of our global trade, about 3 million barrels of crude oil also pass through the Red Sea, pass through the Suez uh, daily. This was prior to these Houthi attacks uh, from Yemen. We did see a slight jump in oil prices on Tuesday. We'll see what happens uh, related to that, as well as what moves the U.S. and coalition partners make. This is not insignificant, Jill. It also comes as there's a drought right now in Panama, meaning less ships can go through the Panama Canal, meaning some ships have to wait longer, pay more, or go around South America. In this case now, you can't take everything through the Suez. Well, that also impacts the Egyptians. You can imagine the Egyptian leader, al-Sisi, is talking uh, to coalition partners, uh, to Arab allies there about what to do, because ultimately this will hurt their bottom line as well. 
All right, staying overseas, you may have seen this dramatic video and photos when somehow all 379 passengers and crew of a Japan Airlines Airbus jet miraculously escaped from a fire following a runway collision with a Japanese Coast Guard aircraft. It happened at Tokyo's Haneda Airport on Tuesday as the Japanese Airlines plane was landing and that Coast Guard aircraft was preparing to take off. The plane burst into flames. Five of the six crew of that smaller Coast Guard plane were killed. That aircraft was preparing to deliver aid to an area that had been impacted by Monday's deadly earthquake in Japan. Firefighters were trying to put out the flames with water when an area around the passenger plane's wing caught fire. The flames spread throughout the plane, which eventually collapsed. It took about six hours until the fire was completely out. That plane was an Airbus A350. It is one of the industry's newest large passenger planes. It entered commercial service in 2015, Airbus saying in a statement that it is sending specialists to help Japanese and French officials who are investigating the accident and that the plane was delivered to Japan Airlines in late 2021. Jill, pretty remarkable here. Uh, this is when we talk about these near misses, air traffic controllers. This is what they're trying to prevent. They're still looking at the details here on how this took place uh, and why this took place on the runway. If you've flown into Japan, you know there's Narita and there's Haneda. Those are the two big airports. Business travelers tend to like um, Haneda because it's closer to the city, easier to get in there. Uh, this fire will be seen as a key test case here for airplane fuselages made with carbon composite fibers like the A350. The Boeing 787 also has these types of fuselages instead of conventional aluminum skins. This is the most catastrophic composite airplane fire. Uh, One expert uh, said the fuselage protected passengers from a really horrific fire. It did not burn through for some period of time and let everyone get out. Jill, you're talking about 400 people getting out in just a matter of minutes. Airplane safety consultants are very impressed, saying the crew did a remarkably great job in getting everyone out without their carry-on bags. It shows good training. And if you look at the video, people are just getting out, leaving things behind. One thing that may have been a plus here, passengers can see the fire outside the plane on the wing, probably giving them a push to move faster, leave behind their luggage, which is often the source of a slowdown. It's a general rule, Jill, it's hard to even conceive of this because you never want to be in this scenario. But the rule when it comes to modern commercial jets is that safety testing has to show that all passengers and crew can be evacuated within 90 seconds through all those um, doors. And so that's been the rule of thumb in building all modern planes. And somehow they figured it out here. We posted the video over on the Mo News Instagram account. But this is a reminder, you know, it's obviously, you know, you're thinking about uh, your belongings and etc. Do not think about that. Think about your lives and, you know, get on an orderly fashion. But a very scary situation, obviously tragic. You know, the five dead on the Coast Guard jet there, and they have to figure out the uh, basics here. But the fact that nearly 400 people were able to get out um, as the fire spread on that plane uh, and everyone is alive, pretty remarkable. All right, everyone, we've got plenty of news coming up. But for now, a quick word from one of our sponsors. If you are a longtime listener, you know that we have both been drinking AG1 for months now. And especially with young kids, we could use all the help that we can get when it comes to energy levels. AG1 is a foundational nutrition supplement. It supports your body's universal needs like gut optimization, stress management, and immune support. AG1 continuously has been refining their formula to create a smarter, better way to elevate your baseline health. 
AG1 is a team of doctors and scientists that tested for 950 contaminants. It is NSF certified for sport and formulated based on the latest science with the highest quality standards. I have one friend who drinks AG1 and always says it's kind of like his insurance policy for the day, meaning that whatever else he has, whatever he eats or drinks, he knows he is covered, that he already got all the really important nutrients that he needs. And I'm the same way. I take AG1 in the morning and I know I am just covered for the day. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash monews. That is drinkag1.com slash monews, M-O-N-E-W-S. Check it out. Time now for the speed read from the Wall Street Journal. Harvard University President Claudine Gay has resigned after facing mounting criticism over how she responded to anti-Semitism on campus. And most recently, multiple allegations that she plagiarized the work of other researchers on multiple occasions. Her tenure as president at just about six months is the shortest in Harvard's nearly 400-year history. Gay said in a message to the Harvard community Tuesday afternoon that she would step down, quote, with a heavy heart, but deep love for Harvard, and that the decision was, quote, difficult beyond words. Gay was the second woman and first African-American to become president of Harvard. She said she would return to the faculty. Gay said she discussed the matter with members of the school's top governing body, writing, it has become clear that it is in the best interests of Harvard for me to resign so that our community can navigate this moment of extraordinary challenge with a focus on the institution rather than any individual. Harvard's provost will be taking over as interim president. Gay, who was a professor of government and African-American studies, became the president in July after serving as a dean at the school for around five years. She had been under pressure for weeks regarding her initial responses to Hamas's October 7th attacks on Israel. She did not condemn the attacks and she did not condemn student groups who had blamed Israel for the terror attacks by Hamas. She did later condemn it. I do think it is clear most, despite the way most write-ups are in the media right now, is that she is not resigning over anything to do with the anti-Semitism. She is resigning because of the plagiarism. The The board backed her on everything related to the anti-Semitism. So, so anyone who's blaming this on like Jewish groups and stuff, that is not what this is. Though she did come under more scrutiny yes. because of that October response. That did lead to more scrutiny for her very shortly into her tenure. If you look at the timeline, she takes over in July. There's October 7th attack. There's the failure to condemn it in a way that many felt would have been sufficient. She then condemns it. Then a couple of weeks later, there are anonymous sources sent by the New York Post um, to Harvard saying, hey, there's some plagiarism stuff related to her. Then comes the congressional testimony. Then comes further investigation. Then comes more plagiarism accusations. And then basically after a couple more rounds of plagiarism accusations, Jill, by this week, nearly half of her research, half of her papers are now under scrutiny for elements of lack of footnoting and lack of original uh, writing that you know, clearly the pressure got to her. Also, we should note uh, the number of donors who have pulled out of Harvard. We're still waiting on those numbers as well as applicants. Applicants are down so far in the fall. We'll see how those numbers end up. But, you know, it's not as significant here. We're talking about plagiarizing other academics in dozens of instances in several academic papers in her PhD dissertation the slow drip here that continued uh, throughout November and December. 
Harvard tried to back her up, the top governing board there in December, saying they had uncovered what they called inadequate citation, but it didn't meet the bar of outright research misconduct. Some people on campus, including students and professors, are like, this is a double standard. We would be out of jobs if we did this sort of thing. And so Gay initially requested corrections to her papers. Then more accusations came out. It comes, as we reported in December, the president of University of Pennsylvania, Liz McGill, was out uh, in the days following that congressional testimony. Uh, And so it was Gay, it was McGill. There was a third university president, the head of MIT, Sally Kornbluth, who also testified, was criticized for that. She has so far been backed up by the folks at MIT. Some have speculated also the fact that Kornbluth is Jewish, and was criticized around not doing enough around anti-Semitism, may have given her a little more uh, bandwidth to move about there at MIT. But yeah, this is you've seen now uh, two university presidents go down in the aftermath of that. Again, as you noted, with gay plagiarism, a much bigger deal. Uh, one person who is leading the fight here against Claudine Gay, Bill Ackman, the billionaire investor, he was among the earliest and loudest critics of gay. He said she wasn't doing enough to support Jewish students on campus. But it appears here the pressure has gotten to her And also, as we're talking about the story, I should say kudos to the Harvard Crimson, the student newspaper there. Uh, They've broken a lot of the headlines related to the university president, um, including that she was out, some of the criticism she's gotten. So kudos to the student reporters over at the Harvard Crimson. Another person who was incensed by all of this was a woman named Carol Swain, who was one of the people that Claudine Gay allegedly plagiarized. She had written an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal saying that Gay failed to credit her for sections of her book, Black Faces, Black Interests. Uh, Carol Swain herself, African-American. She says when scholars aren't cited adequately or their work is ignored, it harms them because academic stature is determined by how often other researchers cite your work. She says Miss Gay had no problem riding on the coattails of people whose work she used without proper attribution. And then she went further saying, even aside from the documented instances of plagiarism, Miss Gay's work wouldn't normally have earned tenure in the Ivy League. Tenure at a top tier institution normally demands groundbreaking originality. Her work displays none. So again, lots of different voices calling for her resignation. From the Associated Press, former President Trump's legal team is preparing to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, the Colorado Supreme Court decision, which bars him from the GOP primary ballot under the 14th Amendment. That decision says that Trump violated Section 3 of the amendment, which bars insurrectionists from holding office over his role in inciting the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. His team also appealed the Maine Secretary of State's decision, keeping him off that state's primary ballot on the same grounds through that state's appellate court. Now, they filed that on Tuesday. Both rulings have been stayed to allow appeals to be considered. The Colorado Republican Party has already appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. So we discussed this a bit before the holidays. It's unclear what the Supreme Court plans to do here, but they clearly need to take this up as you had the main secretary of state make their decision, the Colorado Supreme Court make their decision, and there are more than a dozen other challenges pending um, in other states regarding the 14th Amendment, how to interpret Section 3 here. A reminder, it was ratified back in 1868 and was meant to prevent Confederates from returning to power 
Trump's opponents have seized on the provision uh, to argue he shouldn't be able to hold office again after he urged supporters to fight like hell at the Capitol to prevent Biden's victory. There are a number of ways they could argue this on a freedom of speech grounds on how to interpret a Section 3 here, whether it applies to a president, whether it requires congressional act. Uh, And so we'll see where the Supreme Court goes on this. It's not the only thing they're managing related to Trump and his various legal issues that he's facing right now. Trump has railed against the decision in Colorado and Maine, calling the rulings a sham, saying it's turning the country into a banana republic. We should note that Democrats, some Democrats in both states, have uh, criticized the decision. Democrats outside the state saying, we need to make sure that Trump is on the ballot, even though I oppose him, even though we oppose him, uh, because ultimately, you know, this appears unfair. We should He should lose at the ballot box and not due to decisions by the courts. Again, Democrats tend to be split on this. The congressman from Maine, Jared Golden, he's a Democrat. He wrote that I voted to impeach Donald Trump for his role in January 6th. I do not believe he should be reelected. However, we are a nation of laws. Therefore, until he's found guilty of the crime of insurrection, he should be allowed on the ballot. That's a key thing here. How can they kick him off for insurrection if he actually hasn't been convicted of insurrection yet? All the Republicans who are running against him also opposed to this. Even Chris Christie, who is a major critic of Trump's, saying that these rulings make him a murder and that he's very good at playing, quote, poor me, poor me. He's always complaining. Chris Christie says, I want to beat him on the ballot. I don't want the courts to make decision on our behalf. From the Associated Press, some earthquake news from a place where earthquakes are pretty uncommon. A small 1.7 magnitude earthquake hit New York City early Tuesday, and it may have caused a series of small explosions on an island between Manhattan and Queens. The U.S. Geological Survey reporting that the quake occurred at 5.45 a.m. near the Astoria section of Queens. There were no reports of injuries or structural damage and no impacts to transit, traffic, or utility services. Some residents of Manhattan and Queens did report what sounded like small explosions shortly before 6 a.m. coming from Roosevelt Island, a two-mile-long strip of land in the East River between the two boroughs. Yeah, officials of Con Ed there say the utility suspects that the quake caused those explosions, though there were no power outages. The New York City quake happened to be a few hours after a 2.3 quake, Those of you on the West Coast are probably laughing at these magnitudes, but this is a big deal for those of us on the East Coast. Uh, That quake happened in the Maryland suburbs of D.C. No injuries or damage there either. Many people may remember the 2011 quake that was out of Virginia. It was actually pretty significant, caused cracks to the Washington Monument, uh, was felt as north as New York. Looking into this, Jill, researchers say that New York City is susceptible to at least a magnitude 5 earthquake every 100 years a magnitude 6 every 600 plus years, and a magnitude 7 every 3,400 years. It's been more than 130 years since New York City was hit by a magnitude 5 centered around New York. The last time was 1884, and then there was one in the 1700s. So we are overdue, New Yorkers, for a significant quake, and we don't necessarily build up to standards. So not to add more anxiety to anybody in this new year, but just FYI. <laughs> Is this what we need here, Moshe? I thought we are supposed to be calming people down. We're just the facts, Jill. <laughs> it's very rare. It's very rare. It's very rare. So I actually grew up partly in Queens, in Bayside, and I have this memory of an earthquake hitting Queens from, mm. from back then, and I just Googled it, and apparently, yes, there was an earthquake in 1985 um, that measured 4.0 on the Richter scale, 
I distinctly remember waking up in the morning <laughs> to like what I thought felt like the earth shaking. Jill, sorry to revive childhood trauma for you on the pod today. <laughs> I'm okay, but uh, I am still worried that the big one has yet to hit. It's rare, folks. It's rare. Go about your day. All right. From ABC News, a new record on the U.S. southern border. There were 302,000 migrant encounters along the southwest border in December. That is the highest monthly total ever recorded. The preliminary monthly numbers are the highest on record, according to the Customs and Border Patrol data. The previous high was just a few months ago in September when authorities recorded about 270,000 encounters Last month, agents encountered 12,500 people at the southern border in a single day, which is the highest number of encounters on record for a single day, according to CBP. A lot of numbers, Moshe, um, but the spike in illegal crossings in December was partially driven by Venezuelan arrivals, which had dropped in the fall after the Biden administration announced that it would conduct direct deportations to crisis-stricken Venezuela. Border Patrol has processed 50,000 Venezuelan migrants who entered the country illegally in December, compared to 23,000 last month, according to data obtained by CBS News. The record spike in migration this month is the biggest test yet for the Biden administration's border strategy, which has sought to reduce illegal crossings by diverting migrants to programs that allow them to enter the U.S. legally and enhance penalties for those who bypass those channels. Yeah, they had a short-term win there, the Biden folks did, in terms of numbers. Uh, They have been allowing migrants in Mexico to secure one of 1,500 appointments a day through a new smartphone app so they can be processed in an orderly way. That's something they announced recently. They also had another program that allowed up to 30,000 migrants from Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. Those have been some of the areas we've seen the most migrants coming from recently, allow 30,000 of them into U.S. airports every month if they have U.S.-based individuals who would agree to be their financial sponsors. And so the numbers came down uh, briefly over the summer and the fall, but the numbers have risen again. A lot of issues here, including a lack of manpower, resources to screen and detain all migrants who can be subjected to asylum restriction. These, you know, many of these people come in seeking asylum. You, uh, there are certain international laws through the Geneva Conventions you have to follow when it comes to asylum seekers. Then, of course, you have the people crossing illegally. Some of these people are deported. Some of them are let uh, inside the country with uh, court notices to appear in court for an asylum hearing months or years from now, uh, but they're so overwhelmed. Some of these migrants are being released into the country without even court notices or even without asylum screenings. That's been a huge issue here. And uh, again, will play out is probably one of the biggest stories of this year domestically. And Mosh, finally, from USA Today, we talk a lot on this podcast, especially in On This Day in History, about how certain musicians are sick of some of their most popular songs. But they play them anyway at concerts because the fans love them. So we're talking about uh, Billy Joel. We didn't start the fire. We're talking about uh, Paul Simon. You can call me Al. Some of the biggest hits. These musicians don't want to play them. Well, Nicki Minaj is apparently over her hit song Starships. During a performance in Miami on New Year's Eve, she stopped in the middle of that 2012 single And in a clip that was posted on TikTok, you could see she's basically singing along to the song before waving her hands and telling the crowd, psych, which is my favorite part of this story, because I still say that. Um, She's saying, I do not perform that song. And, And she said, I don't like it. What do you guys want from me? And she called it stupid. 
By the way, Minaj's Pink Friday 2 tour kicks off in March. So anybody who has tickets to that and is expecting to hear Starships, um, I'm sorry. Think again. Listen to it on Spotify on the way or, or as you leave. <laughs> Unless she gets enough pushback here, folks, including from the Mo News uh, podcast crowd, depending on how many of you go to Nicki Minaj shows. So you mentioned the TikTok clip. Uh, comments on the clip are largely in disagreement here with Nikki, one fan saying the track got us all loving you while another fan wrote why do all artists don't like the songs that set off their careers and made them you know it's it's always challenging sometimes jill you go to a concert and you wait for the big hit and then you assume they're gonna do it in the encore which by the way the encore like why are we still pretending to walk off the stage and, <laughs> right. like what is that just about stay at this on. Point? <laughs> just stay on finish the show what is the encore about <laughs> But you, know, you wait for the encore, and then the first encore song happens. You're like, wait, they still haven't played the massive hit that I like, and then they finally played at the end. But, uh, you know, I get it. As a musician, you know, sometimes you, you're an artist, and you're like, I want to play my new stuff. I'm more passionate about that. But the fans have other things in mind, Jill. So we'll see what happens for Nicki Minaj uh, and her tour this year. A friend of mine went to the Billy Joel concert on New Year's Eve, at, which was right here on Long Island. Mm-hmm. And she posted a video of thousands of people in the crowd singing to Piano Man. And I just thought, that's what it's about. I know Billy Joel doesn't want to play it anymore, but he is making this crowd so incredibly happy. Well, I think Piano Man, he just is surprised at how big it got. I don't know. I don't know. Has he, we given him the truth serum? I think that we didn't start the fire. He's definitely talked about negative. He hates we didn't start the fire. <laughs> he didn't want to do that. And he forgets the words to it. Piano Man, <laughs> I think he's just accepted at this point. All right. As always, we end with my favorite segment, not yours, Jill, on this day in history. (laughs) Well, you know what? That's like if one day you're like, I do not want to do on this day in history anymore. I know it's a fan favorite, but I am over it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, rest assured, we're here and we're doing it. And we're beginning in the 1500s. Uh, Thematically today, January 3rd, two popes excommunicated some more famous names in history. We begin in 1521, Pope Leo X excommunicated Martin Luther. He was the German priest who was questioning certain Roman Catholic practices, initiated the Protestant Reformation. So the Pope on this day, more than 500 years ago, excommunicated Martin Luther. Uh, 400 years later, Pope John XXIII excommunicated Fidel Castro, who had transformed Cuba into a communist state. At the time, the Catholic Church opposed communism. And so Castro was kicked out of the church in the 1960s. All right, here in the U.S., happy birthday to Alaska. On this day in 1959, Dwight Eisenhower signed the proclamation declaring Alaska the 49th state. Soon thereafter, Hawaii would become the 50th state. And on this day in tech history, 47 years ago, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak incorporated Apple computers. Another tech birthday on this day in 1996. I had one of these, the StarTech cellular phone. It was introduced by Microsoft on this day 28 years ago. And we end here with a bit of music history. On this day, 37 years ago, the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin, became the first woman inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Aretha making history as she did throughout her career, which brings us to my favorite story about her. You might remember this if you listened to a certain podcast episode we did last April, but the history behind the song Respect. So R-E-S-P-E-C-T was originally written by Otis Redding in 1965. And in his version of the song, it is a plea from a man for respect. 
It is a male-dominated relationship. He wants respect from the woman in his life. Well, Aretha would remake the song and turn it into a song, as we know today, about a woman who demands respect herself. In fact, in her version, not only does she change the meaning there, she also added the R-E-S-P-E-C-T, that's an Aretha twist to the Otis Redding version, also the backup singers, all of it, the classic song we know as Respect, not what Otis originally intended, but nonetheless, Aretha made it what it was. An anthem, really, (laughs) for women the world over. Well, you know, did we need another song about a woman having to show respect for the man in her life? Probably not (laughs) at that that juncture. Aretha's like, how about this for a novel concept? All right, Mosh, respect for Aretha and respect for everyone out there. Hope you guys have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Mo News Podcast. If you like what you hear, share this with your friends. It will help us grow. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and review us in the App Store. Sakatumi, 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 Sakatumi. (laughs) (laughs) Show us the respect you have for this podcast with your reviews on Apple and Spotify. Thanks to all of you who have been leaving them lately. Some beautiful notes. Appreciate all of you. And folks, it's a shorter week because the holiday. So we'll see you tomorrow, Thursday. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.